Hey, well, welcome to Edinburgh Church at Home. So glad that you are uh, tuned in uh, today. Maybe you'd be willing to share this uh, on your Facebook page. And by the way, if you're new, maybe you'd be willing to like our Facebook page and follow us on Facebook as well. We're just glad uh, that you are tuned in um, I hope you're all doing okay out there. I don't know about you. I started to really feel the effects of this whole stay-at-home order uh, this past week. It's, it, it is starting to take a toll on me just a little bit. I found myself putting together puzzles and listening to Christmas music. So I hope you are faring uh, better, than, better than I am. But I want you to know the leadership team is praying for you. We are praying for our community. We're praying for the world. Um, during this time, praying for your mental health, praying for your emotional health, and uh, ultimately we're praying for your spiritual health, that this time could be used in your life for you to truly draw close, draw closer um, to, to God in all of this. We need God right now. Uh, we're in a series right now called Crucial Questions. There are just going to be some questions in our life that we have to ask Questions that truly are crucial for our lives. And the answer to those questions are important. We've got to make sure we get these questions right. Next week, I'm going to talk about what happens to us after we die. You're going to want to be tuned in for that message. And then after that, I'm going to talk about what I believe is the most important topic of this entire series, which is what exactly uh, did, did Jesus die on the cross for? You know, why did Jesus have to die on the cross for us? It, it might be for more reasons than you think. You're going to want to be tuned in uh, for what I believe will be the most important message of this series. But this morning, I want to start by answering this question. Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? This is a, this is a crucial question for us because everything we do here at Edinburgh Church is, is based upon the Bible. It's based on this book. And so we've got to ask this question can we trust the Bible? When Danielle and I were first married, so this was many, many years ago, I wanted to do something really nice for my wife. I wanted to take her somewhere special. The problem was we were on a really tight budget, didn't have a lot of money. So the best thing I could come up with was taking my wife to the boundary waters. Now, young men, young married men, Learn from your pastor's mistakes, okay? If your wife is not the outdoors, adventurous type, okay, um, do not think taking her to the Boundary Waters is going to make it for a great romantic date, all right? Uh, I had a canoe, and so we headed up to the Boundary Waters. If you don't know what the Boundary Waters is, it's this, it's this pretty, a park reserve, I think they call it, uh, up in northern Minnesota, primitive as imaginable. Uh, I don't even think they let motorboats on, on at least most of it. So you have to portage in. You have to get your canoe, and you have to hike in uh, with your canoe, which we did. You find a stream, and then you start rowing the best you can to get to the lake where you're going to camp. And so that part was, was pretty cool. I mean, we get to the stream. We start rowing. We actually came across some moose. We had never seen moose like that, you know, out in the wild before, walking right alongside of us. Uh, I found out afterwards 
that moose kill more people in the state of Alaska than any other animal, okay? But we didn't know this at the time, so it was God's grace. I mean, we were sitting here. We don't know what we're doing. We're trying to feed the moose, like, come here, moose, you know, trying to touch the moose. It was God's grace that we, we survived that. But then I remember we're canoeing, and it's probably been a couple hours of canoeing when finally we see these reeds in front of us. And that was a good sign. It told us the lake was going to be on the other side. So we fought through these reeds. We canoe past. And sure enough, there is this massive lake. Now, the problem was we got there too late. So it's already starting to get dark. But we can see this massive storm front coming right at us. We can see this wall of clouds in the sky coming right at us. And with it, the wind is picking up. And now the waves on the water. So we are canoeing the best we can in this storm. When all of a sudden, we hear this terrible screeching sound the canoe slides up on this rock submerged just below the surface of the water. So half of our canoe is out of the water, and I'm thinking we're going in. The waves are hitting us. We're doing, it's taking everything we have just to keep our balance. I'm thinking we're going to lose all of our gear. And so I knew I had to man up. I knew I had to do something. So what did I do? I asked my wife to step out of the canoe onto the rock and push us off. Now, here's what you got to know. My wife is superwoman. She put one foot on this rock, one foot on the canoe, did the splits, and fell right back into the canoe so we could go on our way. I kid you not, we spent our first night camped on a rock in the middle of this lake, in the middle of this storm. Needless to say, my wife was not in a romantic mood, <laughs> that night. Uh, we camped for a few more days, but as soon as we could, we, we were like, we got to get out of here. So we get in our canoe. We head for where we've come from, but here was the problem. We came around this bend. This, again, this is a massive, massive lake. I have no idea where the exit is. Remember, it was covered with reeds. And so I don't know how to find this little stream that we portaged in through. But one thing that I had done, and this again was God's grace saving us, I had a map with me, and as soon as we had come in on that lake, I had pulled out this compass and had marked the coordinates on this map. And I really just did that randomly. I, I was just kind of doing it for fun. But now I was able to look at that map and say, we came in in this direction, let's head exactly the opposite direction, and that should take us to the exit. And sure enough, it did. I am convinced that to this day, if we had not had that compass and that map, we would still be canoeing around that lake today trying to figure out how to get out of there. The Bible is like that map. The Bible is like our compass, okay? It's our guide for life. It tells us the way we need to live so that we can live God's best plan for our life. The problem is many people today do not believe that God's word is trustworthy. They don't believe that the Bible really is God's word. And this is a huge question for us. Because like I said earlier, everything we do here at Edinburgh Church is built on this book. It's, it's built on the Bible. And, and if we can't trust this book, I'm telling you, there's a lot better things we, we could be doing and should be doing with our time than being tuned in right now, listening to a message and getting our hearts ready for worship. A lot better things that we could be doing. The implications of this question are huge, monumental for our lives. Not just when it comes to the promise of eternity that this book tells us about, but even for our lives in the here and now. 
how to live our lives with purpose and meaning and, and in, a, in a way that can please God. So we've got to get this question right. Can we really trust the Bible? Because we live in a day where many people do not think we can. But here's the question I, I want to answer this morning. Can we trust this book? And I want to give us three reasons why I believe we can and why I believe we should trust the Bible. Okay, here's the first reason. The first is because it comes from God. The Bible comes from God. Now, I know this doesn't necessarily prove that the Bible is trustworthy, but to begin, I want you to at least know what the Bible says about itself. The Bible claims it is the word of God, that it comes from God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So God gives us his word so that you and I can be equipped to live in such a way that pleases him, that we can live the best plan God has for our lives. But what I want you to underline is that all scripture is god breathed. It's God breathed. The idea here is that God spoke the scriptures with his breath. He worked through these human authors to write exactly what he wanted to say to us. This idea of breath is often associated with the spirit of God. The spirit is kind of biblically in our breath. You, you, you catch the spirit of someone through their words and, and, and through their, their, their breath. And what's amazing about this is that God, he, he by his spirit worked through these human authors, through their personalities, through their writing styles, Okay. I, I, one of the things I've had the privilege of doing is studying the Bible in its original languages. And, and you, 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 you see these authors' different writing styles. Paul had a tendency to, to, to write these run-on sentences because he would get so excited with a thought that he would just keep writing. It wouldn't, like, wouldn't even take a breath. Uh, Peter, you read Peter's writings. And, and, and Peter, First Peter especially, it's not always the best technical Greek. Well, it makes sense. Peter was a fisherman, Okay. Then you read someone like Luke. Luke uses these big, he was always the hardest for me to translate because he used the biggest compound words. He was a very technical writer. Well, that makes sense. He was a doctor. He was very educated. And so God worked through these personalities of these authors. He worked through their own writing styles. He worked through the unique events and situations going on in their lives and in the church to communicate exactly what he wants to say to us even 2,000 years later. Now, I just want you to pause for a second and think about what this means about our God. It's not saying that God dictated through these authors. It's not like Paul was like, okay, God, what's next? God, God was like, Paul, hey, 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 write this down. I want you to say this. That, that's not what was happening here. He didn't like force them or possess them to write these things. He simply worked through them to accomplish exactly what he wanted to accomplish. Who could do that? Think about what that means. God, the sovereignty of God who can work through people like that, who can work through situations like that to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. As I was thinking about that this week, it made me realize, man, I want this God to be for me. 
I want to be on the side of a God who can work like that, who can work through individuals, their personalities, their, their situations to accomplish exactly what he wants to accomplish. God says he will work out all things for the good of those who love him. I want this God who can work in that kind of way for me, not against me. Uh, many years ago, when I came uh, on staff here at Edinburgh Church, uh, I remember Danielle and I had, were looking at this house and it just seemed like God had said, this house is, is going to be your house. It, it, I, I've, I've saved it for you. The only problem was I was in between jobs. I hadn't started at Edinburgh Church just yet. Danielle had been laid off for about six months. And so it just didn't seem possible. How were we going to be able to get the loan for this house? And I'll never forget, we sit, we sit down with the bankers and they're across the table from us and they're like, let me get this right, Brent. So you haven't started at Edinburgh yet. You don't even have a pay stub to give us to show us proof that you're employed. No, I don't have that. Danielle, you, you don't have a job right now. No, I've been laid off for six months. They looked at each other and like, oh, well, we're going to give you the loan anyways and handed us the paperwork and we signed. And that is the house we live in today. I, I, I think about that. I think about all the things that had to line up for that to happen. First off, just finding that house that God seemed to have prepared for us. Uh, the real estate agent that we had who did an awesome job just kind of greasing the skids and getting this going for us. The bankers and what was ever going through their minds that would give uh, this young couple this, this loan when we didn't even have jobs. Uh, all the things, and it all goes back to, by the way, prayer. I remember we just prayed, God, we want this house. If, if it's your will, you'll make it happen. And he did. This is what I say. I want this God who can work through hearts, who can work through people, who can work through individuals. The book of Proverbs says the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord and he can direct it like a water course wherever he wants. I hope you're hearing the sovereignty of God when it comes to the scriptures, how he worked to accomplish and write and tell us exactly what he wanted to say. We see his fingerprints all over this book. Let me just tell you one way we see the fingerprints of God over the Bible. You might not know this, but, but the Bible is one book, but it's actually made up of 66 different books. It's one book made up of 66 books written by over 40 different authors. Okay, get this. Written over a period of 1,500 years. It was written over three different continents. Most of these authors never knew one another. It was written in three different languages. Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. Yet, I, I find that when most people approach the Bible, they think it's all these disjointed, random stories and things going on throughout time. Did you know the Bible tells one unified story? The story of God's plan to redeem the world, to save the world. It starts with creation. In the book of Genesis, God creates all things and he makes all things good. His pinnacle is mankind. He creates Adam and Eve to live in a relationship with him. But then we read in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve turn their back on God and they sin against God. And they bring brokenness and they bring pain into the world. And then because of our shame and because of our guilt for our sin, mankind starts turning his back more and more on God and says, I'm just going to try to do life my own way. But God isn't done with the world yet. He calls a man named Abraham and he says, Abraham, through you, he makes this promise, this covenantal promise, through you, I am going to bless the world. And so Abraham begins to have children. Who are those children? They become the people of Israel, the Israelites. And God says, Israel, here's what I want to do with you. I want you to be a city on a hill. 
an example to the rest of the world. Live by my commandments. And I'm going to live in a covenantal relationship with you in such a way that other nations are going to see what you have. They're going to want what you have. And they are going to make me their God. The problem is Israel fails to live up to God's commands. They too turn their back on God. But God still isn't done with the world. We then get to the New Testament and God does the unthinkable. He himself is born into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he teaches us and he does miracles, but ultimately he dies on a cross for our sin. And three days later is raised from the dead. But he didn't just die on the cross for our sin because we're told on the day of Pentecost, he sends the Holy Spirit and he empowers the church with the Holy Spirit, so that now you and I who believe can have the Holy Spirit in us so that we are able to live out God's commands. This is the age of the church. This is the age in which you and I now live. This is what most of the New Testament tells us about, the age of the church. But then we get to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, which tells us that one day Jesus is going to return to earth. He's going to make all things right again, and you and I are going to live in the new heavens and the new earth where there are no more tears, there's no more pain. We're going to live with our God forever. The Bible, over a period of 1,500 years, over 40 different authors, many of whom never knew each other, many of whom were just working with one little puzzle piece and didn't realize what God was doing was painting a picture of how he was going to save the world. This is how I see the fingerprints of God all over this book. It truly isn't a man-made book. It is a book that God has written for us to tell us about his love for you and me. Okay, we see his sovereignty. We see that this book comes from God, that it truly is God-breathed, that there is no other book on earth like that that tells a story like this one does. This is the first reason I put my faith in the Bible to be God's word. Okay, but here's the second reason. It's because the Bible is historically accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. There is evidence that we can trust the accuracy of the Bible. Uh, You might not know this, but there is something God can't do. People ask, is there anything God can't do? Yes, there's something God can't do. God can never lie. Hebrews 6, 18 says it is impossible for God to lie. And so if this is God breathed and it comes from God, then we can trust that everything it says is true because God cannot lie to us. Now, over the years, historians have over and over wanted to disprove the Bible. They've tried to say, you know, that character never existed. There's no evidence of that character Our records don't show there ever being a king of that name. And so they've tried to use that to disprove the Bible. I'll give you one example. For many years, the historians, uh, there were historians who who wanted to disprove the Bible because of the story of Daniel. The the story of Daniel talks about King Belshazzar. uh, But the historian said there is no record of a Belshazzar. They said that the, 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 the uh, last king that we have records of in Babylon, where Daniel was, was a man by the name of Nabonidus. So they said, see, this proves the, the Bible isn't, isn't accurate, that, that it's just made up stories. 
However, archaeologists eventually found this temple in Babylon to this God they worshipped, the God of Ur. And they found this inscription uh, on, on, on the site of, of the building. And, and before I tell you what was on that, I, I want to read for you something that we read in Daniel 5.29. I find this fascinating. I kind of nerd out about this kind of stuff. It says, Then commanded Belshazzar, see there's this king Belshazzar, and, and, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet. Okay, this is after Daniel in, interprets this, 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 this hand that shows up and writes something on the wall. And the king's like, who can interpret this? And so Daniel steps up and says, I'll interpret it. And um, it, we're told they, that after Daniel interprets it, they, they clothe him with scarlet. They put a chain of gold around his neck. And, and Belshazzar makes this proclamation concerning him. Listen to this, that he should be the third ruler of Israel. Underline that. That he should be the third ruler of, of Israel because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. What in the world? I mean, even believers wondered for many years, what does that mean? The third ruler of, 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 of Babylon, that he should be a third ruler. Okay, so historians don't believe that this Belshazzar ever, ever lived. Uh, the, the Bible is therefore discredited. But these archaeologists find this inscription on this temple. And here's what it says. It says, May I, Nabonidus, this was the king that they had record of, that they believed was the last king. It says, May I, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, not sin against thee. And may reverence for thee dwell in the heart of Belshazzar, my firstborn son. Archaeologists went on to discover more inscriptions, and here's what they found. Belshazzar and Nabonidus ruled as co-regent kings. Belshazzar, he ruled at home, while Nabonidus ruled abroad, handling political affairs abroad. And now we understand what Daniel 5 was telling us when it said, Daniel, you shall be the third ruler of Babylon. This just verified and proved exactly what the scriptures had told us. And I'm telling you over and over and over, archaeologists are discovering temples. They're discovering places the Bible talked about that they're said they never existed. They go exactly where the Bible said they, they start digging like Solomon's porch. You can look it up for yourself. And they discover these places and these characters that the Bible talk about. But you know, it's not just the historical events one of the reasons I believe the Bible to be true is because of the historical things that the Bible predicted that have come to pass. Things we would call prophecies. Did you know in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about Jesus? 300. L let me just give you three of them. And I want you to hear how specific these prophecies are, okay? One of the prophecies we have in the Old Testament is Jesus' birthplace, where the Messiah would be born. Micah 5.2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will rule over Israel whose origins are from of old, ancient times. What does that mean? His origins are from of old, ancient times. Saying, this person will be God. God is the one who exists from, has no beginning and rules from ancient times. Tells us that the Messiah, the Son of God, is going to be born specifically 
in the town of Bethlehem. This was written 700 years before Jesus was born. I want you to think about that for a second. Someone can't predict or control where they're going to be born. In fact, uh, Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, they weren't, uh, they didn't live in Bethlehem. They were traveling for the consensus and just happened to have Jesus in the town of, of Bethlehem. You, again, we see God's sovereignty at work. This was predicted. Bethlehem, by the way, is an obscure town. It's not a big city. It's a one-stop sign kind of town. Micah predicts this, and that just happens to be where the Messiah is born. How about this one? The payment for Judas's uh, betrayal. Listen how specific this is. In Zechariah 11, we read, So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the, the handsome price at which they valued me. God's being sarcastic here. He's saying, This is all I'm worth to you? 30 lousy pieces of silver? We're told that when Judas decided to betray Jesus, he received not 29, not 35, 30 pieces of silver. I can't help but think that when Judas walked away with 30 pieces of silver, this verse came to mind and he realized he had betrayed his God for 30 pieces of silver. Man, he must have been struck with judgment at that time. The Bible predicted this is exactly what would happen. That is very specific. How about this one? The crucifixion. Almost a thousand years before Jesus was crucified, the psalmist writes this. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This was written 500 years before anyone was ever even crucified. 700 years before Rome ever invented the, 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 the Roman cross. People must have read this. They had no idea what this was talking about. Those of us who are familiar with Isaiah 53 says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He tells us that the Messiah is going to be crucified. There are over 300 prophecies just like this. There was a, a professor, a chairman of um, the school uh, 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 of, of, of Pasadena, uh, Pasadena College out in California. His name was Peter Stoner. And he was a mathematician and an astronomer. And he said, the chances of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is one to a hundred trillion. The, the chances of just eight of these prophecies being fulfilled is one to a hundred trillion. Is that it would be like if you, if you covered the state of Texas a foot and a half deep with quarters, marked one of those quarters randomly somewhere in that pile, and then had someone blindfolded and walk through Texas and pick up the first quarter they came to. He said, the chances of that being the quarter you marked are the chances of these eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. That's just eight. We have over 300. Friends, the Bible makes very specific predictions about what's gonna happen, which is why when it speaks, we should listen. And do you realize that some of the prophecies and the predictions the Bible makes have been fulfilled outside of the Bible? Jesus prophesied that the, that, that the, the temple would be, I, I, 
would be, would be, would be destroyed. Made that prediction. Your temple is going to be destroyed. Well, we know in the year 70 AD, Rome came in, sacked Jerusalem, and destroyed their temple, just like Jesus said. I hope you'll hear my heart in this one, because this one is, is, is pretty serious. But Paul makes an argument in, in Romans 9 through 11, primarily in Romans 11, that is actually a prediction and a prophecy. And what he says is that the people of Israel, the majority of them, did not see Jesus as their Messiah and refused to put their faith in Jesus. And so what was going to happen was that God was going to break off unbelieving Israel and he was going to graft in to the root, to the shoot, the rest of the world, the Gentiles and the believing Jews. Okay, because God's heart is to see Jewish people, to see the Israelites return to him. All the first disciples, Paul himself, who's writing that, Jesus, they, they were all Jews. But the majority of them turned their back on God and refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to be broken off from the blessings. They're going to lose their protection that they had. And God is going to graft in the Gentiles and the believing Jews, what he calls the remnant. In 70 AD, Rome comes in and destroys the temple. The temple where they practiced their worship. In the 7th century, Muslim invaders are going to come in to Jerusalem, sack the city again. And this time, they're going to build a mosque on top of the temple. Do, do you see the indictment? Do you see God saying, am I getting your attention? Come back to me, Israel. Do you see what's happening? We read about how the Jews were dispersed from the land, persecuted for thousands of years, over a thousand years. Do I even need to talk about what happened in the 20th century with Nazi Germany? Friends, do you see how when God speaks, we, we need to listen. We need to take his word seriously. These are real predictions, prophecies that are being fulfilled, that have been fulfilled in our lifetime. And I don't know about you, I've just learned to trust in what this book says. Every time I go against this book, I, I find myself getting hurt. I, I've learned it's, I, it's not so much that I break God's commandments, it's that God's commandments break me. This book just tells us what is. It's just, it's truth. It's like saying, well, I don't like it, so I'm not going to believe it. That's why many people, they can't make an intelligent argument against the Bible. It's just they've never read it and they don't like what they think it says. Like it's going to kill their fun. But this, this book is our guide. This, this, this book tells us simply what is. It's like saying, I don't like the law of gravity. You can jump out of an airplane and say, I don't like the law of gravity, so I'm not going to wear a parachute. And someone might ask you on the way down, how are things going? You might say, it's fine right now, but we all know how it's going to end. Splat. It doesn't matter whether we like this book or not. I can't tell you how many times I've said, I don't like something the Bible says, so I'm not going to live according to that. And then splat. And many people today are being told the Bible is a lie. You know, this is popular on the internet, popular on, you know, social media, YouTube. You know, young people are seeing this. The Bible is a lie, said, said username, you know, lovemaster420. The Bible is a lie. And young people are like, yeah, the Bible is a lie. 
And we're turning our backs on this book. And yet what's happening? Depression rates at all-time highs. Anxiety levels off the charts. Suicide levels off the charts. I'm telling you, it's not so much that we break God's commands. God's commands break us. It simply tells us what is. And if we have humble hearts, we will listen to what it has to say for directing and guiding and protecting and ultimately blessing our lives. We can trust this book because of the predictions it makes. It is historically accurate. But this brings us to the the last reason I believe we can trust the Bible, which is just from personal experience. The best way to experience the Bible is to read it for yourself, to know this book for yourself. Paul tells us in Romans 12 too, he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, which so many people are doing today. They're just listening to the philosophies and the teachings of the world. Do not be conformed though, he says, to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. He's saying if we will conform our minds to this book, you will experience God's best for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, his plan for you. And we see it all the time here at Edinburgh Church. Lives that have been transformed and changed because of this book. Marriages that have been healed because two people started living their lives according to this book. People overcoming pornography addictions or at least starting the fight against pornography with the help of the, and the guidance of this book. People battling hurts and pains from growing up in broken families or going through divorces and things like that, starting to find healing and redemption and a second chance because of this book. I look at my life uh, coming out of drug addiction and where I come from, and I ask, how did I get from point, from, from, from point A to point B where I'm at today? I- I'm telling you, it was because this book shaped my life. It taught me how to live. It was the word of God speaking to me when I was afraid, saying, take courage. I am with you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. It was the book when I became pride, proud and thought I could do life on my own that reminded me, you can't. It was the book that told me after sin, when I felt ashamed and far from God, that I could come to God and I could receive a second chance and that God would draw close to me again if I would draw close to him. This is the book that has kept me on that path. Because it is the word of God. It is God's love speaking into all of our lives today to guide us and to direct us so that we can experience God's best for us. You know, I told you earlier, we ended up in the boundary waters and by God's grace got out of there. As soon as we got out of the boundary waters, the first thing we did was we found a hotel and I'm telling you, it was the best shower I've ever taken in my life. It was the best shower. It was the best night of sleep I've ever had in my life coming out of the boundary waters. It was like God gave me a second chance on life. That's what some of us need today. We need a second chance on life. And I'm telling you, this book tells you how you can have a second chance on life through 
the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the one who was born into this world to die on the cross for our sin, give us his Holy Spirit and wants to spend eternity with you in a relationship with you right now. I'm telling you, he is not out to kill your fun. Since I started following Jesus, I've been living the adventure of a lifetime, doing life with this Jesus, hearing his word, obeying his word, and trusting that this is his word. I've experienced it for myself and my hope is that you would experience it for yourself. If you need a second chance in life, I'm telling you, this book tells you how. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us without a guide. Thank you that you don't tell us we have to do life on our own, but you teach us wisdom. You give us courage. Ultimately, you tell us how to draw close to you so that you can draw close to us so that we can do life with you. And I know there are some who are listening today who've had their doubts about the Bible or aren't sure what they think about the Bible. My prayer is that you would just work in their hearts by faith to convince them that this truly is your word, that there is no other book like it on earth and that we would be a people who listen so that we can experience your best for our lives, so that your blessings can flow into us, can flow into our children, can flow into our families, and can ultimately flow out of us into the lives of other people. Give us that faith, Lord. Give us the time and the discipline to read it for ourselves, to know this book for ourselves, and ultimately be pointed to the one this book points us to, your son, Jesus Christ, that we might know him, that we might live in a relationship with him, that we ultimately might spend eternity with him and with you. We pray this by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.